Welcome, friends, to another exciting edition of The George Sanders Show. Today, tying in with the recent release of Computer Chess, we'll be discussing that film, as well as Satyajit Ray's 1977 film, The Chess Players. Uh, it's also Terrence Malick's birthday this week, so we'll be discussing uh, his career, as he is our person of the week. And we'll also be picking uh, our favorite cinema-central indie film of the last ten years. With me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. Hello, Mike. <laughs> I'm running out of questions to ask you prior to getting to the show. It's your move. <laughs> the mystery of chess boxing revealed <laughs> on today's episode of the show. Why didn't we listen to Wu-Tang? Because you already played them. We have played Wu-Tang a lot, but... Hey, I'm, you know what? You know what I'm wearing? Tell the, the viewers what we're... You're wearing Wu-Tang socks. That's right. And they're, they're black and green, and wow, are they hideous. <laughs> they were a Christmas present last year from my brother. Yeah. Uh, we played uh, uh, chess rap on the Grandmaster episode. I know we did. So there's plenty of chess rap out there, though. For us, it is. It's a, a surprisingly <laughs> robust genre. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we'll be listening to the Flaming Lips, which is, you know, I think that's a good uh, alternative. Alternative yeah, rock. They're the they're the uh, the Wu Tang Clan of uh, Oklahoma '90s psychedelic rock alternative. <laughs> It's true. Uh, well, I think we should start with a discussion of computer chess. Yeah, let's listen to a clip. Hi, I'm Robert Lawrence with the Evangel Corporation in uh, San Diego. And then we have a Colby 5 here, which is highly optimized for playing chess. And we have designed it around a recursive uh, summer routine that uses brute, brute strength uh, approach to fighting the optimal route. I won't give away exact numbers, but we got the fastest depth first search to get the most number. I think we can predict more turns in advance than any other computer here, so I think we got a really good chance. Uh, my field is experimental uh, psychology, but I've spent the last three years studying chess skill in uh, both humans and machines. Uh, and this is SAR. This is the latest iteration of uh, Caltech's uh, computer uh, chess program. Uh, this is 3.0, last year 2.0. Uh, won this very same tournament. Computers are getting smaller, they're getting better, they're getting faster. It's a matter of time before we beat people with these things. So do you guys have a uh, program in the competition here today? Nope. Don't know anything about it. We're just uh, watching them get ready for the end of the world here. World three. World War Three. That's what we're here for. Getting in on yeah, the ground floor. Do you think a, a human being will ever beat a person at chess? Oh, between a human being and a person? My money's on the computer. Look, I mean, a computer... If you ask Captain Apocalypse, uh, have you talked to this guy? I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm worried I'm writing uh, intercontinental ballistic missile uh, routines here. I just want to win at chess. Okay, that was a clip from Andrew Bajalski's uh, recent film, Computer Chess, that just came out uh, on home video and Netflix and all that stuff uh, in the past week. Uh, the film is set in the 1980s, and it uses 1980s technology to capture that. It looks like it's, uh, you know, an artifact from that period. It, it's kind of a faux documentary style to it. It's black and white for the most part, um, and you get your, you know, 80s effects to the max in this. Uh, and it's set at a convention of computer programmers who are trying to find, you know, they're perfecting their computer chess programs and they're competing against humans and you know whoever wins the tournament at the end of the weekend plays the 
head of the chess group or whatever. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know his name. Uh, Pat Henderson. Pat Henderson. There you go. Way to pay attention. It's played by uh, uh, film critic Gerald Perry. There you go. <laughs> the film goes on to these little diversions. You know, it, it has these bursts of uh, psychedelic, you know, weirdness that happen increasingly as the movie goes on. You know, the beginning is pretty straightforward um, and pretty straight-laced. Uh, but then things, you know, ar arise that uh, make it kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> weird, weird is a, a good word to describe it. There are there there are, are many levels to this movie, and the, and the surface, the most obvious, is the kind of 80s nostalgia trip that it is, which... Uh, I really enjoyed because I remember. The, I did too. I, I remember really the early '80s, and all, all of those people were people that I encountered in life. My mom worked at an engineering company, so I knew people who had these haircuts and these mustaches and dressed like this and talked like this. And so there's there's that level of appreciation, and just like the comedy of seeing like the the video split screens and the the kind of weird. Uh, uh, Max Headroom type special effects that he uses at, at times. Uh, so that's really enjoyable. Then there's like the, the basic story itself, which is of the, the computer, uh, the computer programmers competing against each other and like hanging out in the hotel. I, I love the, the times when they're hanging out and it takes up most of, of the movie. Like there's actually very little of the competition but there's a long there's long scenes of like guys hanging out in hotel rooms drinking beers and, and smoking pot and and that reminded me very much of college. <laughs> Just really geeky, socially awkward people having very intense in-depth conversations under the influence of drugs. Yeah. As the movie progresses, it becomes stranger and stranger as uh uh, a couple of the characters seem to go on on uh, kind of quasi mythological journeys, and and their stories become more allegorical and more and more twisting in on themselves. And one of them gets caught in a loop, and another just kind of goes through a rabbit hole to a a, a different kind of world where he encounters a a, a creepy couple uh, engaging in couples therapy that are. Uh, swingers. To, to, yeah, they're, they're swingers. They're trying to rope him into a three-way, and then he ends up uh, kind of discovering and then accidentally destroying a, a sentient computer. And then he picks up a hooker who turns out to be a robot. Right. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Spoiler alert. So like there there are on the on the surface level I found this movie a lot of fun and it, you know it's just a really, you know, engaging watch and and I like all of the kind of uh, retro elements of it, but it has depths that I, I haven't even begun to, to fathom. Which is to say, I really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it uh, with some reservations. You know, I, I think uh, you're right. The, the world that he creates um, using the, you know, the, 80s technology, um, the way he films it, and and all those computers that they got. You know, I saw the, in the credits they got them from the Goodwill Computer Museum, which I didn't even know existed, but it's probably the coolest place on the planet. Yeah, the Goodwill Computer <laughs> Museum, um, and the attention to detail. You know, I mean, it's all set in this hotel, so they don't have to worry about making you know the rest of society look like the 80s. It's you know, it's kind of in these conventions. It's, it's rooms very and stuff. pointedly set at the hotel, like in, in the very beginning. Somebody says, "We don't want you filming outside." Right. 
Yeah, you, I mean, you do see a couple of shots outside, and you know, every car is you know age appropriate and stuff. But yeah, it's all set. so. I like that. I like the world um, that it's set in, and like you have a history with it too. Um, my older brother, who is much older than me, he's thirteen years older than I am. He uh, is a computer programmer, so you know, this world to me is is very. Uh, so this was probably real. him. Then <laughs> this is him. He did, uh, you know create a sentient computer and no I actually really I remember we we had a Tandy um, that we got and was it a Tandy or a Commodore no it was a Tandy I think um, and I remember him setting it up for us because he'd already had a computer but um, he was in college at this point and there was, the only program that we ran on it was this like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles coloring game that he <laughs> that he found somewhere and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world because he, you know, he knew how to create passwords and stuff like that. And this is ancient history, but <laughs> he asked me what, you know, password I want to use so that no one else could hack into my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> coloring game. Uh, so this is the world that I, I know very, very, very well. Um, so I like that part of the movie. I think almost everybody uh, acting-wise is really great here. They really embody their, their characters. And I think their characters are really well-defined. Uh Except for the performance and the character of... Uh, actually, the character's fine. I think the performance of uh, Papa George... Uh, oh, really? Yeah. I, I think he's he's supposed to be an annoying character, obviously, clearly. But he's the one person in the movie that doesn't seem like they're from the 80s. Like, he's... I don't know. His, his acting... He's not, he's not a very good actor. I don't know. I, I thought he was fine. I mean, there's... Miles Page is his name. Yeah. He's only been in two movies, and this is he's, one. He's, uh, so there's, like, three main, there's, there's actually several competitors, but there's, like, three main ones that we follow. There's, like, an MIT group that has a lady in it. Yeah. Which the, uh, the moderator helpfully points out at, at every opportunity. <laughs> We're very happy to have a lady here this year. A first. <laughs> uh, and they end up winning. There's a, a Caltech group, which is, uh, no. MIT does, doesn't MIT win. doesn't They come in second that, place. Yeah, that's... Uh, no, third place. They come in third place. Right. Yeah. And then they get an award right. for third place, and this is the one with the lady in. Okay. Uh, and then there's the Caltech group, who is the defending champion, and they're the one whose uh, computer becomes uh, sentient, apparently. Like, it, it gets bored with playing with, with computers, so it, it makes dumb moves just to lose the match to get open, to, uh, to get it over with. And then there's... Uh, and they're getting uh, interest from the Pentagon, and there's like some shady like DARPA connections to their computer chess program, and their professor is like this mysterious guy with a newborn baby whose wife is ultra sensitive. Yeah, she's really mean. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and but they're all kind of buying into this into this kind of utopian computer ethic where like computers are the future, and and this is all all this research that we're doing is good, and they and they all kind of think very similarly about the process of, of creating artificial intelligence and creating computers that can compete with humans. Uh, and they're all part of these organizational structures, Caltech, MIT, DARPA, the Pentagon. And then there's, there's Papa George, who is outside of all of that and thinks differently than all of these people. He's an independent programmer just on his own. He apparently lives with his mother, who's very religious. 
and he doesn't fit in at all. Like, he doesn't even get a room at the hotel. Like, they've, they've lost his reservation, and he doesn't have any money, and he, like, steals drugs from people, and he's the one who gets caught in this, in this recursive loop. But his performance is necessarily one of a guy that doesn't fit in. So he, he not only does he not, does his character not fit in, but his performance doesn't really fit in either. He's out of place in the movie. Yeah, and I, I mean, I can see that, you know, from an intellectual standpoint, I can see your argument there, but his characterization just rubbed me the wrong way, and I just, he took me out of the movie whenever he was there, um, and I don't think that was intentional. Um, you know, and, and I thought about this a lot while I was watching it. You know, I, I really didn't want it to be, I don't like this guy because he's the villain kind of thing. Um, yeah, he's not really the villain, though. Well, I know, he's just but, another but everybody else hates him. He's just another kind of asshole. <laughs> um, and I really didn't judge him on those terms. I just, for some reason, there was something about his performance that fell really, really flat for me. The second part, the second thing that doesn't work for me so much with this movie is the flights of fancy that we get into in the second half of the movie. Some of the... I don't mind when movies get crazy and psychedelic and weird. I mean, we both loved Holy Mountain sure. and stuff. Um, but here it was kind of really hit or miss for me. Some of the things worked really well. I, I, I thought the ending was great. I thought the prostitute that's a robot was really cool. Um, but then there were other ones that, especially when he starts doing the camera tricks and he starts, um, when he goes, when Papa George goes to his mom's house and it's suddenly in color and then mm-hmm. he is in the loop and stuff. And the mom is reciting a Bible passage that he says, uh, you, you know, you'll never understand this or whatever, but she's clearly talking exactly about what he's doing at that moment, you know, and he doesn't re- realize that. that hit, it was it, too obvious for me, you know, a little too on the nose. Those are minor quibbles. I think this is a very interesting, good movie, and um, it's very audacious, and I, yeah. I, I respect it for that. Yeah, it's... Uh... It was it was surprising watching it. The only other of Andrew Bajowski's movies I've seen is Mutual Appreciation, which is a kind of a, a much more conventional kind of hipster romantic comedy kind of thing. But not really. It's not really a romantic comedy. It's it's about like a a guy who's a film director who comes to visit his married parents and or his married uh, friends and. Uh, yeah, just kind of hangs out with them. It's like a, it's a mumblecore movie. He's right. one of, of that group of, of very low-budget, very talky film directors. But he's much better. <laughs> well, yeah, this is the only and, thing of his I've seen. And I, yeah. I'm very impressed by it. Don't get me wrong. Um, I, just, I just felt like there were moments of this that reminded me. Did you ever see An American Astronaut? No. It was like an indie thing that came out like 10 years ago or whatever, and people were over the moon about. And I saw it, and it's it's interesting. It's got interesting ideas, and it's, it's filmed in an interesting way, very low budget and stuff. But then it does the same kind of thing where it kind of... And I don't want to stop a director from following a rabbit hole and doing these oddball things because I, I, I think there's merit to that. But sometimes it's just weird for weird's sake, and I just don't really care. There's uh, there's two movies it reminded me of. The the first is uh, Primer, mm-hmm. which is another uh, very low-budget sci-fi film that, that came out recently that's very much kind of in its own world and just kind of hopes the audience will go along with it. Uh, 
and maybe you don't exactly understand that. Like I understood nothing of Primer, but I but I enjoyed the ride, and like I I enjoyed a lot more of computer chess. I think I got a lot more of it, but there's still plenty in there for me to to mull over. And as I watch it again, uh, the other one is uh, not a sci-fi film at all. It's it's Richard Linklater's Slacker, which also has a, a collection of oddball geeky characters that love talking about their obsessions and kind of exist in their own little world. And, you know, Slacker is a portrait of a particular moment of the late eighties in, in Austin, Texas and and the kind of people that, that populated that area. Whereas this is a period piece. It's, it's an an imagining of what people were like 30 years ago. Also shot in Austin though, I think. Yeah, I think so. But, but the kind of people are, are still very similar. Yeah, no, the, the, I can, I can definitely see the lineage there. Um, for those and and you know I've, I've talked about my two qualms but let me talk about the things that I think work really well for this movie um, Papa George excluded I think everybody like I said does a really great job um, with their characters particularly and, and I, I'm not going to remember his name Peter is it? Peter is the uh, the young programmer for Caltech who st- who doesn't sleep the entire time yeah, the convention did. is going on and he's the one who who begins to believe that the computer has become sentient. Yeah, and he his journey is easily the most engaging, and, and I think his his char- as an actor, I think he does a really great job of. He's of, as close as the film gets to having like a, to being a central character. Yeah, because the movie ends with him, and he you know seeing his the attempts at a, a budding relationship with the female programmer. Uh, do you, do you think he's interested in her no but she's interested in him yes yeah uh but no he's well there are moments where i think he is interested in her particularly at the end i I love their last interaction when uh she knocks on his door and tells her about this dream that she's had which is another one of those kind of allegorical things that throws the whole rest of the movie into uh into a whole different kind of world for me It's, it's she had this dream that all of the people were were chess figures and add their movements were mimicking chess movements and each of them corresponded to different figures, which uh, is actually something I thought of a lot in watching the, uh, the statue Ray film. Yes. But uh, uh, she tells him about this dream and he asks her, uh, did you see anyone teleport? <laughs> no. Did anyone bump into anyone else and then disappear? No. And then, okay, and he closes the door. <laughs> he says, thanks for coming. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic scene. It's a really wonderful scene. Um, and they have, you know, I, she kind of spurs him to go and get the prostitute because, you know, he's, he's at the, right after that scene is, you know, he um, accidentally leaves a window open and rain falls on the uh, sentient computer and it destroys it. And um, the leader, the um, professor, he he's very upset at him and and he will not accept his apology, and they drive off and uh, Peter is standing in the parking lot and as the van drives away we see uh, the woman getting into her van and she kind of waves at him or whatever and she goes away and then he goes and gets a hooker. <laughs> um, so yeah, his story is really great. He's fantastic. I love every moment of of that section. Um, uh, his interactions with the swinger guy. Yeah, are hilarious. Like that that first conversation that they have is he's just like standing outside the hotel, and just this creepy weird guy just starts talking to him. 
I, you know, I paused the movie at that point and, and told my wife that I have been that guy so many times in my life, just being just some weird dude talking to me. Yeah. And it's so uncomfortable. It is very uncomfortable. And the, the, the actor who plays Peter is great at that. It's, uh, uh, Patrick Reister is, is, is fantastic in those scenes. The, the later scene where the, the swinger and his wife are talking to him, I don't know that that scene works quite as well. But just kind of the the, the mixture of, of panic and a little bit of curiosity and then just kind of freaking out that he gets in his face is, is, is pretty cool. Yeah, I think that scene works. It might be a little long. The first one is perfect. You're yeah. right. I mean, it. We've, I think we've all been there, or at least those of us that are socially awkward and... and Geeky. Yeah, those of us that are not the creepy weird guy <laughs> talking to strangers. Well, let me tell you from a swinger standpoint. <laughs> uh, you into therapy? Um, and let's talk about the therapy session too, because I, I think it's very intentional that he puts you know this group. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in the film is when Papa George gets caught up with the therapy group and they birth him. Yeah, they they, they send him through a tunnel of birthing. Uh, He's crowning. Yeah. And you didn't want to use the Flaming Lips song with vagina in it. Yeah. Look at you. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, and that whole group is really interesting because, you know, in so many ways they're the uh, antithesis of these, you know, very logical... Um, you know, right. It's like the, the remnants kind of, of the new age seventies. Right. And they're having, you know, they're, <laughs> I think the funniest part is they're, there's some sort of exercise they're doing where they stick their hands into warm, like loaves of bread. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the best part about that though is later, um, in the scene, there's a woman in the background eating the bread. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I also really like the, um, there's there's this fringe guy that comes because he suspects that all of this the whole computer chess thing is just so that you know to create you know weapons of you know for governments right to just, right he, you know, he's uh they call him Captain Apocalypse at the beginning yeah he's a he's super paranoid and stuff but he's just great and and yeah. his character is really wonderful because he invites people into his room and throws a party and he's got drugs and stuff um, and there's that really great scene where he's interviewing the guy that ultimately wins about, you know, what do you, what's your real purpose behind this? And, and this guy is just this huge nerd and he's, he's yeah. like, you know, but they have this philosophical. He, he looks like, I, I swear to God, he looks like 30% of the people I went to college. With. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's a, that's a great character to throw into this world. Yeah. I love the little thing in, in that, in that scene, the uh, Captain Apocalypse's uh, friend, uh, is just kind of he's, he's stoned and yeah. just kind of zoned out through the whole conversation, and then and then at one point the they have a little chessboard at the, on the table, and uh, and the guy just does this this thing with the knights. It's called the knights tour, where you move the the knight around and, and touch every single square, and the camera focuses on that while the two are talking, and it's a it's a great choice because it's really cool, and, <laughs> and it's also really trippy, so it kind of gives you that that kind of druggy druggy vibe that you get from these late night conversations. Yeah, that's that's another character that I really like because that he doesn't necessarily subscribe to his friend's ideas, you know, he's just kind of there. Yeah. He's just kind of along for the ride. And he ends up at Papa George's mom's house, you know, and he's just kind of he's a really great surrogate for the yeah. audience where he's just kind of sitting there like stoned out of his mind, like what's going on here? Yeah. Um 
So yeah, there's I mean wonderful uh, characters and um, really really well done film that I just I just felt had uh, a couple of elements that rang a little false for me. Um, to uh, detriment. Another thing I love about Papa George is the way he is plagued by cats. And it starts with just one cat sitting in the ice room, and it's, it's like in the background, and you kind of don't even notice it. Uh, but it gradually becomes more and more cats until when he finally gets a room in the hotel, he takes the hooker up to the, the same hooker, takes, yeah. her, takes her up to his room, he's finally got a room, and it's full of like 50 cats. Yeah. So he closes the door and sleeps in the, uh, the banquet hall, which is where he ends up meeting the... Uh, New Age people. Yeah, but uh, uh, the the cats are, are another kind of mythological symbol. That you know, they're they're mysterious. They're guardians of the underworld, and I will select them keeping watch on this hotel. There are I. I need to watch this movie again. <laughs> There's a lot going on there that I I just did not catch. Yeah, I would I would definitely give it a rewatch. I, I absolutely would. It's funny because um, my girlfriend and I we're going to Scarecrow to return stuff and I needed to pick this up this week. And uh, as we're walking up, she said, what, what movie do you have to check out uh, again? And I said, Computer Chess. And she was like, I don't want to hear anything more. I, I don't want to know anything about this movie. And I was like, why? And, and she refused to watch it with me. She was like, that's, I, it's like, for some reason, those two words together, <laughs> she just said, nope, sorry, not going to do it. And I thought, which, that was really interesting. So, yeah, I, my wife watched it. She thought it was okay. Yeah. I think it's it's a little better than okay, you know. Uh, but I, I'm intrigued in other. You know, Bajowski's got uh, five films. I think he's directed now. Yeah, uh, Funny Haha. I I know it's supposed to be good. I haven't seen that. Uh, Mutual Appreciation. I did. I did really like though. Yeah, I've seen Beeswax uh, come through the library a lot, um, but I, I haven't uh, given it a shot. But yeah, it's, it's a very, you know, he's. Got potential, yeah. I'll say. Well, with that, uh, let's hear a little Flaming Lips. This is the song Be My Head, which I will always now think of uh, robotic prostitutes, which is, you know, knowing the Flaming Lips, probably what it's really about.
All right, welcome back to the George Sanders Show. It's uh, we're going to launch a new segment right now. It's called <laughs> "What's Mike Been Watching?" <laughs> so, Mike, what have you been watching? Well, Sean, I'm glad you asked. Uh, you know, it, this past week has been Thanksgiving week, uh, and I had four days off in a row, which is wonderful. So, I, I really got to sit down and view some cool things. So, as I've mentioned on the show previously. On Thanksgiving, we tend to do a double feature, me and the missus, um, usually re-watching stuff from our childhood or something that, you know, is a lot of fun or whatever. And this year, we, we did a double feature of uh, Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy from 1990 and uh, Gremlins, the original Gremlins, Joe Dante's film from 84, uh, both of which hold up, I'll tell you that much. Uh, particularly Gremlins, uh, which I think is just perfect. I mean, it is just such a wonderful movie. It's it's fantastic. We actually watched Gremlins and uh, Gremlins 2, the new batch, uh, earlier this year. Yeah, I was actually pushing for a Gremlins, Gremlins 2 double feature, uh, but uh, Lindy, my girlfriend, nixed that. She thought it would be too much Gremlins. Although she had a, an absolute blast re-watching uh, that one. So... I could probably squeeze in a new batch before the end of the year. It, it might be better. Yeah, I, I, it's one I haven't seen in forever, so I, it's very hazy for me. Like Gremlins was, too. Gremlins is one that I watched a few times as a kid, but didn't, you know, unlike Bill and Ted or something like that, didn't keep watching, um, which I'm kind of kicking myself for now because, gosh, that movie's great. Yeah, I think it was around the time our, our son was born this year when we were just looking for you know, stuff to watch when we're sitting on the couch with no sleep. Yeah. And uh, ended up rewatching a lot of Joe Dante movies. And he he's fantastic. He's one of the, the great underrated American directors of the of the eighties and nineties. Yeah, he's he's really, really great. And and you know, you gotta give a shout out to Chris Columbus for that script because there's <laughs> Phoebe Cates's uh, story about why she doesn't like Christmas is yeah. the greatest monologue. I, I think in film history. I mean, yeah, what happened to that guy? It was like Home Alone, and then Harry Potter, and then Harry Potter, and yeah, I don't know, I don't know what's going on. Um, and Dick Tracy too uh, holds up. That was a movie I just watched endlessly on VHS as a kid. Um, yeah. I always, I always really liked that movie, and and it it also has kind of uh, disappeared from from consciousness, even as like you you compared it to Tim Burton's Batman. Uh, and you know that is that has kind of died off. But Dick, Dick Tracy is like I, yeah, I feel like nobody sees Dick Tracy anymore. Yeah, well, you know, it it wasn't the global phenomenon that Batman was. Yeah, obviously, and obviously it didn't have sequels. Um, although I heard that I think I heard that you know Beatty still owns the rights to it, and he was about to lose them, so he shot like a secret movie to just retain the rights recently. Really? That he's not going to release. It's just you know so that he can you know for legal purposes or whatever yeah huh. which is weird but uh but yeah it that is is one of the greatest you know comic book movies are a dime a dozen nowadays but if you really want to see uh an idiosyncratic interesting take on a comic book movie dick tracy's the one well it's a great comparison with with burton's batman because because the tim burton batman was was notable for how dark it was it was all like these gothic you know this like melding of, of frank miller's comic book with, with tim burton's visual style which which was really striking at the time it was unusual for a superhero movie and then dick tracy is completely in the opposite direction with like these candy colored you know really bright and and colorful and this ridiculous makeup effects and is very comic strip like yeah it's it's visually it is an amazing achievement and you know it it just recently got released on blu-ray which is how we watched it and those colors just pop 
And, you know, I mentioned in my review too that uh, Beatty really, I think, there's one particular thing he goes back to a lot where um, there's, there's an object in the foreground with a character in the background um, that kind of split the frame. And I think that's really just him, like, trying to approximate, like, a comic strip panel. Yeah. Um, and it's And it's really, really well done. I think it's... It's a lot more interesting than something like uh, Robert Rodriguez's uh, Sin City, speaking of Frank Miller, yeah. which I think, you know, it's it's an interesting visual style to that, but Dick Tracy just goes bonkers with it, which is really great. All right, that's what Mike's been watching. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on to the news, and uh, once again, not much news here, which is, you know, of course, why we added a new segment, uh, <laughs> but what is going on is, is that people are starting to put out their end-of-the-year top 10 lists, top movies of the year, and that's going to be going on for the next month at least, and it's really kind of annoying. Yeah. Uh, so far... I've already got fatigue from it. Yeah, Sight and Sound <laughs> and Kaye de Cinema have put out their lists, uh, we're going to be doing something like that this year, but we're not going to do a best of 2013 list because we're not going to put gravity on a list <laughs> and we haven't seen enough movies we really yet from that are actually from 2013. So uh, two things we want to talk about with, with lists is how, um, how we define the year in film, which is somewhat idiosyncratic where we're both hardline, uh, IMDb date people where if a movie says it came out, if IMDb says a movie played in 2013, then it's a 2013 movie. But if it premiered in, uh, in China in 2012, if it played a film festival in Finland in 2011, then it's not a 2013 movie. So a lot of the, the movies that we really like this year, like, like to the wonder, uh, uh, drug war, those are 2012 movies. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so that's the reason why we don't have enough 2013 movies to make a really compelling list. I do, because I saw a lot at the film festival, but most of them are movies that haven't played yet either, so they're going to be showing up on people's 2014 <laughs> list sure. next year. Uh, so what we are going to be doing instead, we're going to be doing two episodes that are kind of year in review kind of things. The The first one is coming up on December 16th, I believe. December 16th. And what we did is we, we took a look at the movies that each of us had watched in 2013, the older movies, movies from... Pre-2013. Pre-2013. And each of us picked one... Uh, that the other had seen that we hadn't seen yet, and we're going to talk about those. So I had seen Crank, <laughs> which is which was your choice, the uh, Jason Statham film from uh, the directing team of Neville Dean and Taylor. That's right. Uh, speaking of candy-colored cartoonish action movies, <laughs> I can't wait. And I chose. Uh, I spent I've spent most of this year watching Hong Kong movies and specifically action movies from Hong Kong. And in particular, the films of Sammo Hung. And the one Friday that I was out of out of town, I was in Vancouver, the Grand Illusion Theater in Seattle played a Sammo Hung double feature, <laughs> which you went to, but I missed because I was out of town. So we're going to watch uh, The Victim, also known as Lightning Kung Fu, which you saw at the Grand Illusion and I haven't seen yet. It's so. a blast. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, and then at the end of the year for the December 30th episode, uh, instead of looking back at 2013 in film, we're going to look at 1933, which was a fantastic film, and we're each picking movies that we haven't seen 
from that year, and uh, I still haven't chosen mine, but you picked the Mae West Cary Grant film, I'm No Angel. Yeah. And so that, that show is going to be all about 1933. It's going to be great. We'll yeah. listen to 1933 music. I'll dress in 1933 clothing. Uh, we're going to talk like Glenda Farrell and Tracy. <laughs> yep. Uh, we're so, going to record it and release it like on a, you know, acetate. Yeah. 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 It'll be the, uh, the, the, uh, <laughs> the, the 45 or the 78. 78. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, tying in with, with, uh, stupid list season is stupid award season and awards are starting to get nominated. And the stupid award that got nominated this week was the independent spirit awards, which are, uh, the best, uh, the best picture nominees they got, they went with, uh, 12 years a slave, all is lost. Francis Ha, Inside Lewin Davis, and Nebraska. And I've seen one of those. One of them hasn't come out yet. Have you seen any of seen, them? I haven't seen any of them. I mean, I, yeah. I do really want to see four of those. <laughs> Can you guess which one I don't want to see? You don't want to see Francis Ha? No, I don't want to see Nebraska. Oh, okay. Um, actually, have Francis Ha... I think in transit to me right now through the library. So I'm, I'm going to get to that very soon. I, I really liked it. It's one of the best films of 2012. That's right. And <laughs> we were going to talk about, we should say, we were going to talk about Inside Lewin Davis next week. Um, but they pushed it back um, another two weeks. So yeah, it's not opening in Seattle till later. So. Yeah. So we're going to do another Cohen, but we'll talk about that at the end of the show. Yeah. Uh, so like the main thing that's dumb about the independent spirit awards is that they award films that aren't really independent films. They're, they're basically kind of sub, uh, major studio films. They've got, you know, established directors and established actors starring in them. Like, you know, inside Lewin Davis, the Coen brothers movie as an independent spirit award. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that drives me nuts about the Independence Spirit Wars. <laughs> I don't know. Before Midnight got nominated. Uh, you know what got nominated for an Independence Spirit Award? What? Kate Blanchett in Blue Jasmine. The Woody Allen movie. The guy's been making movies for 50 <laughs> years. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. It's ridiculous. There there should be an award that, that rewards movies that were made for under a million dollars. Yeah. I agree. Truly independent films. Truly independent films. Let's Well, let's talk about truly independent films, because that's our Cinema Essential this week. Uh, tying in with Computer Chess, obviously, we're picking uh, our favorite independent film that was released in the last decade. So you've got you know 10 years to work with here, Sean. Uh, what did you pick as your... Cinema Central independent film. There's there's a lot a lot of great choices and most of them are musicals. But I'm going to go with uh, one that came out last year that was actually a 2011 film uh, called Girl Walk All Day, which I haven't talked about yet on the show. I've uh, never heard of it. Uh, really, really, that is surprising. <laughs> uh, well, Girl Talk is uh, is like a I don't know what you call him. He uh, he takes. Uh, snippets of music and mixes them all together and uh-huh. it's like a mashup right kind of thing and he put out this album called uh all day mm-hmm. and so a couple people uh basically made a series of music videos of the entire album but it runs together they all play as one basic feature and it's about a uh a girl a dancer 
she's in a ballet class, but she finds that's too boring and restrictive. So she busts out into the streets of New York and basically runs through New York dancing for an hour or so. And along the way, she meets uh, uh, two other dancers. One is uh, called The Creep, and he wears like a, a hoodie. And he's uh, he falls for her and kind of chases her around the city. And also uh, uh, an Asian guy who's a ballet dancer as well. And she interacts with him as well. And she runs around and tries to get people to dance with her all while the music plays. It's, there's no dialogue or anything. It's just one long music video. And it's awesome. That's great. That sounds really interesting. I, yeah, I have not heard of that film. So Yeah, it was... Uh, not released in, in theaters at all, as mm-hmm. far as I know. There is a DVD of it, but it's uh, you can uh, stream it free on online. It's uh, they got a website. At least you could last year. It it would uh, it would stream in different segments, one for like each track of the album. Mm. So you'd have to watch it in like you know eight minute chunks. But the uh, yeah, the music is all really cool too. I I can see how it would be really annoying if that kind of mashup music thing would drive you nuts. Like you have like snippets of like Radiohead smashed against the Beastie Boys with right. with you know uh, eight other tracks underlying it all, but uh, but I liked it. Well, sometimes that stuff, you know, yeah. I mean, I think with anything, music, movies, whatever, any subgenre, five percent of it's going to be good. The rest of it's going to be crap. And I've heard a zillion really crappy mashups, but there are a couple that you know jumped out at me, and I've been like, hey, that's pretty pretty interesting stuff. But that's that's the kind of thing that that you know truly reflects an independent spirit because it's basically like a half a dozen people getting together with a camera and making a movie on their own without any funding from a studio without ever any hope of it getting like a theatrical release or major awards at film festivals. It's just filmmaking for the joy of making a film. Yeah, that's a that's a great pick. I, I have I, I fear now that you're gonna uh, yell at me for my pick because. My- <laughs> Because my pick does have an established director at the helm. It has established stars uh, in it. And it was released theatrically, but it truly, if we're talking independent spirit, it has an independent spirit, and it came and went like that, and I think more people should see it, so I'm going to talk about it, so screw you, Gilman. Okay. Uh, I'm talking about Jim Jarmusch's uh, Limits of Control, which came out uh, four years ago now, uh, and it played for like a weekend, and it was yanked because nobody <laughs> liked it. Um, and I thought, for me, it was a return to form for Jarmusch after um, Broken, Broken Flowers, Flowers, which I thought was uh, probably, I think it's his weakest film, and Coffee and Cigarettes is, you know, a bit of a diversion, and um, I even think Ghost Dog isn't as good as... Um, everybody thinks it is. I think it's good, but I don't think it's. But uh, limits of control, I just love. And it's and talking about an independent vision. I mean, the whole movie is about art existing, uh, you know, without corporations and and you know. I mean, the the which kind of spoils the ending there, but um, but the whole movie. I don't is, think it's possible to spoil. I know you can't really control. spoil limits of control. I know, <laughs> um, but the whole movie is. Um, these, you know, it's kind of like coffee and cigarettes, where you have two people having a discussion on art or science or you know any anything you know that people can be passionate about, and it kind of just goes along in these little, you know. I, and I think from what I've heard, he kind of does a similar thing with the new one, uh, 
Only Lovers Left Alive, which I haven't seen yet, but um, if, if that's the case, I'm all for it. But it builds to this really interesting climax that you don't really see coming, but it makes so much sense and uh, kind of shapes everything that came before it, and I love it. I think it's fantastic. It's, it's, uh, I am one of the few people who saw it in the theater. I dragged my wife to it, and she hated it. <laughs> uh, I, I really liked it. Uh, it's a movie that I keep meaning to watch again, because much like computer chess, it's, it's something that I know I did not get all of the first time around and really wanted to explore further. I just, I haven't gotten, I have the DVD, but I haven't gotten around to, to rewatching it. Uh, I love the soundtrack too. Soundtrack is great. Boris. Boris. Yeah. Boris does a really good job. Uh, I think I've seen it three times now. I saw it once. This is when I still had Netflix. I I got the disc from Netflix, watched it, was like, that's amazing. Rewatched it like within 48 hours. And then a few months later, forced my girlfriend to watch it and she responded to it. She liked it. But, um, you know, I was like, it's better than Inglorious Bastards, which is what everybody, you know, that was everybody's favorite movie of, of that year. It's, and she was like, you're crazy. But It's similar <laughs> in that both movies are, are structured around uh, conversations. conversations. Yeah. And it's also much like coffee and cigarettes in that way, because they're all conversations over coffee. Right. But uh, I don't know that it's better than Glorious Bastards. It's, it's, it's up there, though. Yeah, I, I think they're, they're both in my, in my top five for that year. Yeah, it's really good. So, uh, with that, uh, we also have our segment where we talk about, well, let's, you know, ma- maverick directors, if you will. Uh, Terrence Malick's birthday was a couple of days ago. It was yesterday, I believe. It was yesterday. But when people hear this, it'll probably be a couple of days ago. That's true. <laughs> Wibbly, wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. Huh? Yeah. Um, and Malick is a director that you and I kind of bonded over, I think. Um, you know, and... He, Terrence Malick bringing people together since 1973. <laughs> He's a good guy. You know? Malick's you know career is 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 pretty singular. It's very interesting, and, and most people know it by now. But you know he he kind of came out in the 70s with Badlands, uh, Days of Heaven, One Two Punch of really you know inventive, wonderful, independent kind of you know cinema, uh, and then he disappeared for 20 years. He was a you know he wrote for the New Yorker for a bit. He went to France. He he tried putting together a, a number of film projects, I believe, that, that all just ended up falling through. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't return until 98 with uh, The Thin Red Line. And the last 15 years has seen quite a uh, speeding up of his release schedule. You know, Or at least the last two years. Well, I know, but you, you've got, uh, what, seven years between... Uh, Thin Red Line and The New World. Thin Red Line in in 98, The New World in 2005, and then Tree of Life in 2011, and then... To the Wonder. To the Wonder in 2012. And then he's got Night of Cups, and he's got like three movies that are coming out, apparently, in the next, you know, handful of years here. Yeah. We'll we'll see what happens. The the rule with Terrence Malick is to not count on a release date until the movie... you actually see the the print or now the uh, the hard drive in the theater. Yeah, it's it's uh, he's like Wong Kar Wai in that respect. You yeah, know, I think of the last you know decade, the two movies I've been most anticipating coming out uh, were The Grandmaster and The Tree of Life, and they kept getting pushed back and back. Um, so yeah, that's how it goes. But Malik, you know, when he came back, he was kind of uh, you know, he was a critical darling when. When he made his first two films, he came back with a thin red line, which people were kind of frothing at the mouth to to uh, you know proclaim as the greatest thing ever. Which I think it 
really is really, 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 really good. But I think a lot of that was just hype from from people that were writing about it. I think it's I, I do think it's wonderful. Um, one of the best war movies. He, he, in the came, last. he came back different. Yes, um, and when the New World came out, talk about movies that came and went. You know. Uh, very, very, very quickly. That's a movie that had a lot, a lot going against it when it came out. Um, some of it, which had to do with with Malick, uh, as he became more and more abstract in his filmmaking and and less and less dialogue and more and more kind of poetic voiceover narration, that started to rub people the wrong way. And uh, when you add to that uh, the fact that it starred Colin Farrell, who at the time was uh, seen as like the the latest uh, pretty boy, empty-headed pretty boy that that Hollywood was trying to push on audiences, and people just did not like him. He'd been in like SWAT, and uh, was it the uh, was it Oliver Stone, uh, Alexander the Great movie? Oh right, was right, he in that? right. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so people just hated Colin Farrell <laughs> at the time because I, I remember I would like I would try and convince people, you know, you got to go see the New World, and like. Colin Farrell, Ew. right, right, yeah, but, but and also it was released. Uh, you know, I think he didn't make his deadline, and it was released in January, like post. You know, being able to qualify for any awards, right? It, like it, it, it just snuck in for like the award season deadline, but it didn't have any kind of a push behind right. it, like critically or, or anything else, because all the critics start publishing their best of list the now. first week of December, <laughs> right? Uh, and then the final version of the New World didn't get released until the last week of December after after everyone had already started talking about it, uh, which is another reason why end of the year lists are dumb. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but it's it's a movie that I think has gained as as time has gone on, as we've we've grown more distant from the Colin Farrell as the man of the moment kind of thing to recognizing that Colin Farrell is actually just a, a pretty good actor. He's been, he's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so I think when when people come to it now, yeah. They like it a lot more than they did then. Uh, it's my favorite Terrence Malick movie. It's it's you know in my go to top ten list of films. You know my favorite films of all time, which is a silly list, but uh, it's easily there. You know. Um, yeah, I think when we did a uh, a best of the two thousand things for for Metro Classics, it was it was our it was our number one collective number one. Number one. Um, I think it's just endlessly fascinating. I think it's his. In a way, I think it's his most fully realized film. The thing, the thing with the Thin Red Line is, there's so much that is cut out, and I'm sure there's a lot cut out in the New World too, and everything else that he does. But I, I, I the gaps are are larger in, in something like that. Whereas to me, the New World, in any of its cuts, I think is is just a profound moving uh, movie going experience. Not that his other movies are not. I mean, I I think sure. the Tree of Life is is just amazing. That was my favorite movie of whatever year that was 2010 yeah, and 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 that one got a, got a lot of recognition it was kind of like after the new world the tree of life got everyone back on Terrence Malick's side and, and then, then to the wonder. and then they <laughs> abandoned him again with truth with to the wonder which i really liked did you did you see it when it when it played earlier I, this year i did i saw it at the harvard exit i mean no i saw it at the uh, guild 45th theater and um i I really, uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's probably my least favorite Malick movie, but you know they run the gamut from five to four stars, so it's a four star movie. Um, my girlfriend, who loves Malick, hated it. I mean, interesting. 
just hated it. She she thought it was um, like a parody or something, you know, because it's 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 his most abstract film. Yeah, easily. Um, there's, you know, it's, I don't it's, even think it's his most abstract, but it's also much like like Tree of Life. It's it's so personal, and you and you can tell that it's it's coming out of of his own life. Oh yeah, and and his own story, and I think that makes it much harder to relate to. Like with with Tree of Life, uh, it it had like the a, a more recognizable background uh, backbone of like a coming of age story and a boy's relationship with his overbearing father that more people could relate to. But it was still very specific to to Terrence Malick's own life experience, and and it was a very much a, a kind of insulated, closed film in that sense. So you're even no matter how much you like Tree of Life, that at some level you're just standing back and admiring it, mm-hmm. uh, or picking out the the few little things that you can personally relate to. Uh, to the Wonder is is kind of similar in that, in it's closed off like that, but there are much fewer entry points in it than there are there were with Tree of Life. Yeah, um, I do think that Affleck is is a weak link in that movie. Like I, and I don't know if it's his fault or I, or the editing or whatever, but yeah, he's, he never really sells me on the transcendence. <laughs> um, well, I, I don't think, I don't think that's his job. Like I, I think that has the conception of the character is, is perfect for Ben Affleck and his limitations. Yeah. In the same way that like, you know, people will say that, that Charlton Heston is terrible in touch of evil. But he's not like right. he's he's cast specifically for the ways in which Charlton Heston is distinctive as an actor. Right. Uh, the same with Ben Affleck. Like he's cast there to be this kind of blank. He's 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 pretty. You can see why Olga Kurylenko and Rachel McAdams would be attracted to him. But he's he's kind of the point of view figure of the film. Like we're not getting her point of view of him. We're seeing them the women through him. Yeah. And I see that, and I, you know, I'll reserve judgment until I see it again. But um, I, there are specific shots in that movie where I, I can see Affleck, and I can kind of see the confusion on his face where he doesn't really know what he's supposed to be doing at this moment in the film. You know what I mean? Yeah, but that I, kind I of. Think, I think that's part of the character, also. Like I think, I, I yeah. think, he, I think he goes through life. I think he really goes over that line, baffled by the women in his life. Sure, he could be baffled, um, but yeah, you know. But other than that, I think it, it's it's got some of the strongest images. I think in Terrence Malick's work. I mean, there's that shot with the buffalo, um, and them on the car and stuff, and um, and there's really not that much twirling in it. There's a lot, there is a lot of twirling, but she's a dancer. We like I know. That's, that's that's like one the, of the, the whole point key of her... points of her character is that she is a dancer. We see ballet shoes. She should be twirling all the time. I don't I don't have a problem with yeah. twirling. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, we could probably talk about Terrence Malick for a really long time. Yeah, but <laughs> let's just well, what, let's just okay. What's your favorite Terrence Malick movie? Uh, it remains Days of Heaven, okay. which uh, I, I love. I love all of his movies, Bad, from Badlands to The Wonder, which are probably the my two least favorite. Me too. But uh, but Days of Heaven is is a complete and total film in a way that that some of the the later more abstract ones are not. 
uh, I think it's it's kind of the the best combination of all of the things that I love about Terrence Malick. Yeah, it's I mean it's astounding. You know, I, I, I would probably say my top three. You know, uh, New World, Thin Red Line, no, New World, Tree of Life, uh, Days of Heaven. Because I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, so I can argue with that. Days of Heaven, New World, and, and Thin Red Line are my favorites. But, yeah, but. I'll, I love them all. So, so with that, let's just say happy birthday to Terrence Malick and listen to a clip from uh, the chess players. What about his songs? He's something of a composer, I understand. Are they any good, these songs? They keep running in your head, sir. I find them quite attractive, some of them. See, he's really quite gifted, sir. He's also fond of dancing, sir. Yes, so I understand. With bells on his feet like notch girls. Also dresses up like a Hindu god, I am told. You're right, sir. He also composes his own operas. Doesn't leave him much time for his concubines. Not to speak of the affairs of state. Does he really have 400 concubines? I believe that's the count, sir. And 29, uh, uh, mutter wives. What the hell are mutter wives? Mutter wives, sir. They're temporary wives. Temporary wives? Yes, sir. A Muta marriage can last for three days, three months, or three years. Muta is an Arabic word. And it means temporary. No, sir. No. It means a enjoyment, sir. Oh. Oh, yes, I see. Hmm. Most instructive. Uh, what kind of a king do you think all this makes him Western? All these various accomplishments. Rather special kinds, I should think. Special? I'd have used a much stronger word, Weston. I'd have said a bad king. A frivolous, effeminate, irresponsible, worthless king. He's not the first eccentric in the world. I know he's not the first, but he certainly deserves to be the last. We put up with this nonsense long enough. All right, that was uh, Jurassic Park founder Richard Attenborough in Satya Ray's 1977 film, The Chess Player. Welcome to Jurassic Park. <laughs> the Chess Players tells two parallel stories. The first is of these uh, two rich noblemen who like to play chess. And oh, the other boy, is the, uh, the kind of historical epic story of how the British came to take over the, the province of Aoud in, in north-central India, which is now uh, Uttar Pradesh. Apologies for any pronunciation of any names <laughs> in this segment, once again. And uh, Attenborough plays the British general who's trying to convince the, the king of Oud to abdicate so that the, the British uh, East India Company can take over administration of the province, as they've done with most other sections of India as, as Britain has been colonizing the whole subcontinent. That story is, is very historically accurate, as I understand. Uh, and it's it's kind of fascinating the the parallels between between Attenborough and and the king as as Ray cuts between them. But what dominates the film is the story of these two chess players, and they're both noblemen in the city of Lucknow, which is the capital of the province. And they are obsessed with chess. They just got to keep playing again and again and again, much to the irritation of uh, their wives and everyone around them. And that's the really funny part of the film. It's great. Uh, 
but how how did you how did you find this this mix of these two parallel stories these kind of two comic figures against the the more sweeping historical backdrop? Uh, I thought I thought they complemented each other just perfectly because it because they inform one another. You know, um, it shows you know these these men they have nothing to do. They they you know they're moneyed. They don't have um, work to, to attend to. They don't have any sort of obligations whatsoever. So they're just idle, um, as the king is too. As we as we you know we find out, um, they're just idle men who have you know they pride themselves on their ancestors who were warriors and fought. And they yeah, talk about yeah, you know their the great grandfathers. Yeah, were were generals in an army and and the reward that the generals got were these estates and these guys are still living off their great grandparents. Yeah. The glory of their great grandparents. And you know, the, they, they have, you know, um, their great grandfather's sword on the wall and they, they, you know, they love, you know, they're, they're proud to, you know, show that to visitors and stuff. Um, and yet all day they just sit around and play chess, which allows, uh, you know, greedy, empires like you know uh britain to come in and just say hey we're taking over and they can be a little outraged but they're not going to do anything you know um and the same is for the king the king the king is a you know a, a more well-rounded character and i the king is very fascinating because the um he to attenborough the king is this anomaly this weird why is this, what's this guy's deal because he um, he's, he's very devout. You know, he talks about how he prays five times a day. He does all the ceremonial stuff. Um, but he also, he, he's not really interested in in running the uh, country or, or a province or anything as a king. He, he likes the trappings of being a king. He likes that it affords him time to write poetry and write songs and stuff. And he's an artist. And he, write, he likes his 400 concubines. And his concubines, yes. Um, he likes all that stuff, but he doesn't actually want to rule. Like, when, you know, he never really wants to, um, you know, when, when a tough decision comes up, he, he basically rolls over. <laughs> um, and so these, these men are very similar. And, 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 Seeing that play out, it, it shows you how you know uh, an empire can just steamroll over these people. So, do you think? Do you think the film has has an agenda? How uh, do you think it's 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 making a political statement about how India uh, was too decadent to defend itself against the the colonization by Britain? I, maybe not that so much as. Or just too late. They're just culpable. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a reason. Yeah, I think he's just saying, you know, don't get too mad at the British. Like, you let this happen, you know? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. I have, I have a, a slightly different take on it. Okay. Uh, and it, it gets to what I think is most fascinating about this thing is, is the, the, the kind of balance and the parallels in the structure and the, the way that the characters are set up. And it's, it's very chess-like. And I think, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, it's very intentional that I don't know if there's like exactly one-to-one correlations between all of the the speaking characters in the film and actual chess pieces, but just the way the story is laid out, it's both in parallel and it's in balance because the thing that makes chess such a great game is, is that it's endlessly variable, but each side is always equal. Right. Uh, There's no element of chance as you get in, you know, like a card game or something like that. Right. And and that's what makes chess so addictive to people is that it's it's entirely up to you. You control your own 
fate. Right. So I think I think there is this this element of recrimination against the the noblemen of of India who kind of got fat and lazy and 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 let the British roll over. But I think there's to balance that. I think there's there's also this kind of long term perspective when we see that eventually the British did leave and India returned to the Indians and. The king's decision in the end to to abdicate to surrender, uh, seen in the light of eventually uh, you know a hundred years later India gets its independence, uh, that doesn't seem like such a bad decision because by not resisting the company's forces by surrendering this game, all of these people survive. Right, there's no bloodshed. There's no bloodshed. There's there's no war. Indian civilization rolls on. No, that's very. That's that's a very good point. The characters in the movie, there's no way they could have known that that would have been the case. Obviously, but from Ray's perspective, sure, absolutely. Well, I, I don't. I don't know that that's that that's true because one of the things about about common people is they don't really care who's ruling. Them. Right. Like it doesn't really make any difference to you know the poor feudal serfs if they're if they're being ruled by Queen Victoria. Or by the the local king of of, of Oud, they're still serfs. Well, and I think he, the king, has that realization because he, his best scene is when he. It's a great scene um, in, the, in the near the end of the film, where he's gathered all of his you know confidants near him, um, and he's kind of berating them all for failing him. You know, how could you let this happen? How could you let you know? Um, the British come in here and just take over and stuff. And he talks about how everybody loves him, you know, and they, they sing his songs in the streets and they, they you know, they see that I am, uh, you know, an honest man and they love me. But then he has this moment of realization and that's when he decides to let go is that he's just, and he, it's never explicit really, but he kind of just says, Maybe. Yeah, it's, it's actually it's a it's a little surprising yeah. when he does give in because because he gives this long monologue and at the end he ascends his throne and is like I will not sign this treaty and it's like this really kind of triumphant defiant moment and you're like yeah we're gonna fight the British <laughs> screw those guys and then when he meets Attenborough he he gives him his crown yeah uh, which I think is I think that's really a wonderful aspect of this film um, and yeah you're absolutely right I mean the, the the people being ruled don't really care, as, you know. Not not much really changes depending on who's running the ship. Well, let's talk about the uh, the two main characters here, the yeah. the, the chess players, uh, Mister Mizra and Mister Mir. Yes, I love these characters. <laughs> I really do. They're they're buffoons. They're you know they're petty. They 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 cheat one another, you know, but out of love or whatever. Um, and I just love seeing them. It, it, what's great about this is that it takes place in, you know, this is a movie from 1977 that takes place 120 years in the, in the past. And yet the situations that these guys go through are, are so similar. I mean, it's, it's so contemporary, you know. We, we, we talked about in computer chess kind of recognizing the, the people and, and the, the environments. When, when uh, Misra and Mir go off in search of a chess set and wander the streets. 
because they can't do anything else because they have to play chess. That was like, you know, 40% of what I did in college, like going from video store to video store to rent movies or rent a video game with my friends because that was the only thing we could do. Like, I, I, I'm convinced that we don't really have in, in our society kind of the idle rich noblemen like this anymore, like the landed gentry mm-hmm. type people. Uh, most of our rich people have jobs of one type or another. Uh, the closest that we do have to the idle rich is college students that don't have jobs. <laughs> and and that's what I was for, for several years. <laughs> well, I was teasing this out um, afterwards and I was like, you know, I'm not necessarily one that's, you know, jumping for a remake or anything, but I thought of a really interesting take on a remake for this movie. Okay, it's late. It's like 1989, something like that, maybe early 90s. Uh, South Central LA, gang warfare going on, you know, and there, there are these two guys, let's say Ice Cube and uh, Chris Tucker, because why not? Let, let's say one of them's named Craig, uh, one of them's named Smokey. They, they're at home, they're just interested in getting stoned and playing Sonic the Hedgehog on their Sega Genesis, you know what I mean? Meanwhile, there's this gang warfare that's going on where the sides are all changing and they're just interested in their game, Sonic the Hedgehog, that movie would be fantastic. Yeah, you could name it after a day of the week. Well, possibly. Like <laughs> Tuesday, yeah. I'd say. I'm a big fan of Friday, I must say. I think it's an underrated classic. But um, but yeah, it's, it's what's so good. Is, is I, I see so much of, not only, I see some of myself, you know, but I see my brother in these guys. I see, you know, um, and what's so... The best part of this movie for me is the end, where the, they leave their comfortable lives, or, you know, their homes, and they, because they, they don't want to be, you know, enlisted to fight against the British, and they go out into the, the outskirts. Well, they can't, they can't play in their homes anymore. Right. Because uh, the one guy's wife is, is mad because the playing chess all the time has made him impotent. <laughs> and the other guy's wife doesn't want him around because she's sleeping with his nephew. Yeah, which is uh, some weird stuff there. <laughs> that, that's so, it's really funny. Uh, he, it shows how blind he is when he walks in on them, and he and the nephew's halfway under the bed. Yeah, that that whole scene is hilarious. Oh, it's just great. What are you doing under the bed? I'm hiding. hiding. <laughs> <laughs> and like the 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 two of them lie so terribly and he just totally buys it because he's just going to go back to his chess game. You know? Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know. Um, and Anyway, so anyway, they're so looking for somewhere to play. They're looking for somewhere to play and so they, they leave the city and they head out across the water to, you know, basically poverty row. <laughs> um, and everybody's left because they also don't want to be enlisted but they, you know, they're actually fleeing. And these guys are looking for a place to play and they just end up sitting down in the dirt, playing their game, getting bit by mosquitoes. It goes to show that all of the stuff that they, they clung to really doesn't really matter to them because they're perfectly happy being poor um, in the middle of nowhere as long as they've got their chest set, you know? Yeah, and, you know, this, this dynamic of, like, the two kind of every guy, everyday guys who are they're thrown against the backdrop of big historical effects is, is kind of a... Uh, historical events is, is kind of like a Shakespearean device. Like they're the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern 
of of this story. The R two D two and C three PO, if you will. Right. So you know, it's it's something that Kurt Kurosawa used a lot. Just kind of a everyday guys caught up in these big events that they don't understand at all. Hidden fortress or something. Yeah. Well, and what's funny is that there's nothing really redeemable about either of these guys, and yet you still really like them. Yeah, because they're they're so much like us. <laughs> they're so stupid, and, and maybe they're not like like normal people. Maybe we're you know kind of exceptionally obsessive kind of of guys, right? But uh, you know, much like the 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 chess programmers in in computer chess, they get lost in in their own game in their own, in their own work. Like like the uh, the young programmer Peter stays up all night coding. And doesn't seem bothered by it. Nope. And it's exactly the same kind of thing that uh, that uh, uh, Mir and uh, and Mirza will do. Is they'll just spend all their time playing the game. They're lost in their own world, and everything outside that world just doesn't matter at all. Yeah, and they, you know, if the pieces go missing, they will, you know, make do with tomatoes, or they'll try and steal them from somebody else and stuff. I love when they go to like their their, their friend's house, their the old lawyer, because they want to borrow his chess set and he's on his deathbed. <laughs> <laughs> so they just start playing with his chessboard. Well and then what's great is is, is his one of his servants comes in and brings them tea or, or some sort of beverage. And moves the board. And moves away. the board and the look of like longing and, and terror on their faces when so they, they move <laughs> They get up and kind of walk towards the board and kind of nonchalantly move the pieces like, eh, we're just here to visit our friend. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's yeah. great. Uh, what did you think of Richard Attenborough? I, I thought he was I thought he was pretty decent here. Um, the first scene with him was a little... the So the first scene with him, and actually his whole character is kind of his character's trying to understand Indian culture, or not... He's, a, he's, he's a, not actually trying to understand it, but the first scene with him is him being told how life is lived by the king, and, and he's, you know, this pompous kind of British guy. And he's, he's, like, a, he's, a Colonel, he's a Colonel Blimp type. Right, very Colonel Blimpish um, kind of guy. And so that scene kind of seemed like exposition, exposition, a little too much of that. As the movie went on, though... Um, I think the last meeting he has with his uh, advisor before they go to see the king, I think that's a really strong scene um, where he's, they're, they're, talking, they're talking it all out kind of philosophically about what we're going to do. Um, and his advisor says, well, what's good or what, what, what's the good thing to do? And, he's, and he makes a very he's, salient he's, point. He's reluctant to do it because he knows that they're not morally justified in what they're right. about to do and they're, they're breaking they're, treaties they're, they're barely legally justified and he yeah. doesn't he doesn't like it at all but he's following orders right and then he says you know what's good for the soldier is different for the you know citizen or the queen or the people and you know and yeah what did you think of him I, th- I thought it was great i like richard Attenborough as an actor uh as a director, I don't know. Uh, I right around this time, he, he came out with The Bridge Too Far, which is a movie I really like. But the uh, the one he's most famous for is uh, also set in India, and it's it's Gandhi. Have you seen it? Nope. Have you seen any Indian movies? Any Indian movies? Yeah. Uh, well, I've, well uh, such as Ray, I've seen uh, The Music Room, okay. which I, I think is also really, really well done. Um and I don't know if I've seen anything beyond, like, Ray stuff. 
Yeah, I've seen, uh, I think this is the fourth Saturday Joe Ray film I've seen. So most of my uh, experience of, of cinematic India comes from Europeans making movies about India, like, like Richard Attenborough's Gandhi. And it kind of fumbles it. Yeah, it's not, it's not, uh, like if, if you could make a, a generic Hollywood biopic and throw all of the, the big, bloated, giant things that Hollywood puts in biopics into one movie... It would be gone, <laughs> and it would win the Academy Award. Yeah, yeah. it would win ten Academy yeah. Awards. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think it, it gets to the the heart of what India is like, either from an Indian perspective or from a, a colonial perspective. Which I yeah, I, I think uh, like Jean Renoir in in the River, where he's adapting uh, Rumor Garden's novel about British colonists living in India and this this family of, of girls growing up there. Uh, it it kind of captures the experience of being a white pe- white people in uh, a place you don't really understand, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's a more expansive view of that that colonial experience. Whereas Gandhi is is very much like a, a European telling an Indian guy's life story. Right. Yeah, that's you know, and that and fortunately that's a, a pitfall that happens all too frequently. I mean, not just obviously not just of India, but of any you know country yeah and I, you know i don't i don't want to say that you know europeans can't make movies about about india because it, it's it's much more complicated than that and and ray himself studied film in in europe he was a, an assistant on uh, on renoir's movie and uh, later went to study film in in paris i believe and then when he came back to to india in the 50s and started making films they were very much influenced by Italian neorealism with the Apu trilogy. And then later he got a little stranger. Like the ones that I've seen are, are the music room, which I wouldn't call a neorealist kind of film at all. And then, uh, two that just, uh, Criterion just released recently, uh, Mahanagar and Charlotta are both fantastic movies. And, but none of them are, are very similar, I think, to the chess players. Like it, well, this came later. Yeah, this is much later in his career. This is like 15 years after after Charlotta. But there's a a similar just kind of uh, of uh, non flashy kind of naturalism in his directorial style. There are uh, a little you know occasional flourishes of like pans or or kind of push ins on actors, and there's an extended uh, dance sequence which I think is is really cool. One of my favorite things in in the chess players actually was this this dance sequence that uh, it's not it's not like a Bollywood number. Uh, Ray's not a Bollywood filmmaker no. at all. It's not a musical. It's like an actual performance that the king is watching, but he shows it to us in kind of documentary detail, where an actual performer is is singing and an actual dancer is dancing, and we see what she does. Well, I think it's important to mention too. I think when I was um, in the credits in the beginning, Ray also wrote the music. Yeah, and we we were talking about that last week. The uh, the great directors who were also composers, and and we neglected to mention Satya Jiray, who, who does music for lots of his films. Yeah, and really good stuff. Yeah, very 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 good. And the, I think my favorite musical moment in the film is actually the king singing his song um, to himself in his kind of moment of reflection yeah. um, in that great final scene. And what's so great about it is he's singing it, and it's this kind of lonely lament. And he's, and he's clearly in his own head at this point, you know, um, remembering when he wrote the song and, and the circumstances surrounding it, he's singing it and he finishes 
and Ray cuts to showing the guys behind him, and they start clapping, and it's clearly not the time you're supposed to be clapping at the king, you know? He's, he's going through his own stuff there. Right, um, and you see, you see exactly how they failed him. Yeah. Uh, I think that's just a wonderful touch. And I love the, the very, very end of this movie. I love movies that, I mean, open-ended movies are great. All, all kinds of movies can be great, but I love movies that just have, like, a nice, tidy little cherry on top and when the two when uh, Mir and uh, Mirza play their final chess match and they say let's do one more game let's make it a fast one and then they change to the, uh, the British English style. version of, of chess I love that it's yep. so great so great so I think it's a, I think it's a really great movie yeah I I agree <laughs> well with that uh, let's hear some more Flaming Lips what song did we decide on? Uh, Race for the prize. Race for the prize. Yeah, soft, the soft bulletin. That's it for our show this week. Uh, next week, we, like I said earlier in the program, we were going to try and squeeze in a screening of Inside Lewin Davis uh, and then talk about it, but unfortunately it got pushed back. So we're substituting with another Coen Brothers film. We're going to be discussing uh, The Hudsucker Proxy from 1994 um, and creating a whole kind of screwball episode because we're also going to talk about Lady for a Day. Um, screwball comedies will be our Cinema Central pick, and we'll pick the Coen Brothers as our person's people. Of the week. Um, if you are in wherever the Brattle is, that's in... It's in Boston. Yeah, it's in Boston. <laughs> it's a great theater. I've been there. It's, I saw Seven Samurai there. There you go. And Mr. Arkadin. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Um, well, if you were there in the coming weeks, they're doing a complete Cohen's uh, retrospective, actually. Um, starting on December 9th, they're going to be showing Blood Simple. And they're, they're actually going out of order, which is kind of interesting. Um, they're, but they're showing everything. Um, I think you can't go wrong with any of them. But for for fun, I'm going to pick go Friday the 13th, go to their double feature of The Man Who Wasn't There and Miller's Crossing. Because that'll be fun. Yeah. 
Uh, also on Friday the 13th, uh, Draft House Films is releasing all over the country Abel Ferrara's Ms. 45 from 1981. And let me get this uh, description down here because I haven't seen it. It uh, follows a mute garment district seamstress who, after falling victim to multiple unspeakable assaults, ignites her one-woman homicidal rampage against New York City's entire male population. So that sounds fantastic. It does sound really, really wonderful. And and Ferrara is, is one of those very independent-minded directors who... Uh, I've always been meaning to explore further because every one of his films that I've seen, uh, I've really liked a lot. The, he did the original Bad Lieutenant with uh, with Harvey Keitel, where he is a very bad lieutenant. <laughs> uh, and my favorite of his is, is New, New Rose Hotel with Christopher Walken and Willem Dafoe and uh, Ozzy Argento, mm-hmm. which... I don't know how you can get a better cast of weirdos than that. <laughs> That's a pretty good it's, it's, it's a great movie. So I, I am looking forward to, to Ms. 45. It'll be playing at the Grand Illusion here in Seattle and all around the country in various other independent, awesome theaters. That's a great pick. Uh, you can find us online uh, at the georgesandersshow.blogspot.com. We're on Twitter at Geo Sanders Show. And you can email us at the George Sanders Show at gmail.com. Do we have anything else to do? Nope. Cool. Here's George. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die The world will always welcome I should put Yoshimi versus the pink robots. That no, no. To annoy you. <laughs>